The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. My name's Jason Fleming, and this is the More Than My Past podcast from the Forward Trust. Today's guest, Kirsty Day, is a living testament to the power of the Forward Trust work and proof that no one is beyond hope. Kirsty was born to heroin addict parents, and her past has included growing up in care, depression, addiction, and a 10 year cycle of imprisonment, detoxification, re offending, and re addiction. She's now a wife, a mother, a Cambridge Research Fellow, and manager of the Nelson's Trust, a respected drug and alcohol treatment centre in Gloucestershire. Kirsty was one of the first ambassadors for the More Than My Past campaign, giving a presentation at the Houses of Parliament in support of it in February of this year. We had an emotional chat about how she was able to make this incredible turnaround and how she's helped others do the same. She's also met Princess Kate twice in the unlikely surroundings of a woman's prison. I started by asking her how she came into contact with the Forward Trust and the role the charity played in her story. So I am a a graduate of uh, one of the programmes in HMP Send that Forward Trust as they were formerly known as Wrapped Ran in 2007. Um, so with that kind of forward trust import, there's only two places I would be, HMP Style or uh, Preston Cemetery. That was the only way that it was going. So that's how I came to know Forward Trust. And Kirst, if you don't mind going back a little bit, what I've become really fascinated by through work in the NIC is that progression from childhood to adulthood through the care system and into prisons and you were in care from quite a young age weren't you yeah talk a bit to me about that care system to prison journey is it does it seem inevitable is is there does anyone escape that or is it something that a personality would have to be incredibly strong to to uh, avoid that that progression so where there is you know children in the care system uh, there is a trauma one accompanies the other you know so what happens is you go from a place of unsafety and in my particular uh, story my you know both my parents were heroin addicts so I was weaned off heroin at birth born into absolute chaos and then moved into the care system in a way that was supposed to be a measure of safety I go into different people's homes and families having no experience whatsoever of family life, connection, bond, attachment, uh, love, nurture, and um, don't thrive in that environment at all, and then end up in the more institutional end of care settings. I didn't feel pressured to behave like somebody's child. I didn't feel pressured to allow somebody to parent me. People turned up for their shift. They tried to keep us alive. They tried to make sure we didn't fight or... You know, they they didn't even try and educate us because it was pointless. They were fighting a losing battle. There there becomes a safety and a familiarity in that that is then found in prison settings, interestingly. And then that jump, so that jump up, you know, if it's not inevitable, is it, you know, does it feel like a natural progression, that jump from a children's home to prison? Is that, do you have to style it out when you hit prison? Are you like, this is proper? Yeah, I will never forget my very first encounter with Her Majesty's institutions, let's say, was I was 18 and it was the 7th of December. I can't remember the year, but it was the 7th of December and the judge sentenced me to two weeks remand in what was then HMP Risley. 
And I remember being on the sweat box, uh, driving there and just thinking, well, what am I going to do? Like, I, I'm, I'm a kid. I'm, I'm a YO. You know, I, I've, I've just got to front it. It's the only choice I have. And being in the care system or walking into new children's homes, it had developed that skill set. I knew how to walk into a new environment and front it and keep myself safe. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah. It's about confidence, isn't it? Yeah. Or fake confidence. Yeah. But it's about a show of a show of confidence. Yeah. Which is the same in life, you know, the ability to appear like you're okay. Yeah. Like you're the master of your own universe. This is not by accident. You planned the whole thing. You're fully equipped and it's all going to be fine. It's literally like that. And Kirsty, had you already 18? Did you already have a drug of choice by that age? And did that continue in the in the prison? And was it the same? Yeah. Um, so I, not so much for that first prison sentence, because like I'd vowed that I was never going to be a heroin addict because my per- parents were. So, you know, that was a lifelong vow that I thought I would manage to uphold, but I didn't. And so I was already addicted to heroin by the time I went in for that first sentence. As I said, that first one, I I couldn't carry on quite in the same way because I was only there for two weeks. I didn't have time to arrange anything. They didn't, the facilities, the medical facilities weren't the same then as they are now. So no, I kind of did a withdrawal for two weeks and then got out and used on the day that I got out. Addiction as an ailment, do you think it is genetic or do you just think it's, I grew up with booze all around me, therefore it was an option? Therefore, like you you point blankly went, I will not do this because my parents did it. But mm-hmm. um, there's also that thing of like, because it's there, there's not it's it's not so far away from you, is it? It's not such a huge leap. No. And, it you, you know, everybody grows up in a house called normal. Mm-hmm. Heroin addiction and chaos was my normal. And even though I ended up in lots of different environments. The very first time I ever used heroin after, you know, having been weaned off it at birth, it felt like I was a thousand piece jigsaw who'd lived for 18 years with 999 pieces. Mm -hmm. And there was that final one. That's what it felt like. I don't know if it's kind of genetic nature, nurture. I know that there was a lot of trauma that that particular drug for me was the perfect. It was like the elixir of life. That was that was my one final piece, and uh, and I felt complete. Kirsty, you know your recovery became your profession in a sense. Now that gives you an insight that no social worker can have, no doctor or medical practitioner can have. You know because you've been there, and that is uh, yeah. an amazing asset. But on the flip side of that, it means you live that life with your recovery 24-7. You know, you, 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 you're, if you're a bus driver and you're in recovery, you drive a bus and then you stop driving a bus and you go to meetings. You know what I mean? But with you, you live that. And although I'm sure there are massive pluses to that, do you, do you feel that it, it affects your recovery or in any way makes it difficult? It, it did in the earlier days um, because there's... There's an extra, there's an arrogance that can come with being a an addiction practitioner in recovery. That it can almost breed an, an arrogance that, you know, you're somehow in the elite school of addiction practitioners and everybody else who went to university for seven years isn't. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, sometimes it's hard to discern whether you are 
trying to heal something in yourself through a client's experience or you are, you know, prescribing an intervention that is correct for them. So on the front line, yes, but as the years have gone on and my roles have changed, I've been able to channel it in a completely different way. So I did a piece of research with the Institute of Criminology at Cambridge and I channeled everything into that research and wrote programs for women who've sold sex. So I, I channeled it a little differently now. So I'm not as in the front line. Um, and, but I had to do a lot of work to learn how to switch off because there's a hypervigilance when that's what you work in and that's what you've experienced. Um, that can be really wearing on the system. I saw that, Kirsty, on the website. I was looking up your uh, centre that you work in and that you've specifically started a programme for women who've worked in the sex trade. Mm -hmm. And obviously their journey is very specific in a counselling way, but did you find that the the drug of choice or the addiction is the same with those women as it is out of the sex trade is that is there is there anything unique to that area of work that you do drug wise not not necessarily drug wise so a lot of women end up in the sex trade because they exhaust other criminal justice options so for example if you're if you've been convicted of shoplifting 50,000 times and you're a heroin user you need to raise funds every day but you're known in town you, you're not really built for burgling so your options it's a very narrow path and you know that is what usually is a really common reason for women to end up selling sex um what happens after that is a very unique reality for a very specific cohort of addicts that it's not the same for people who shoplift it's not the same for people who burgle it's not the same for it's a trauma within a trauma within a trauma and it requires a really specific healing pathway and how long have you been doing that, Kirsty? How long have you been running that? that We've program? been running it now for probably about three years. How's your success with it? Well, a hundred percent of women complete. They've never seen anything like it. Um, so what? Amazing. What kind of happens is the first thing is it, because it's such a shame-filled topic. When they come into the first session, they come in with their arms folded, with the scowl. Oh, I'm not talking about this. I'm not talking to you. Who are you? Because shame says stay quiet. And then we do an exercise in the first session that is designed to create a me too without shame and lots of disclosure. And by the end of the first session, they're like, okay, all right. So this is a safe place to speak. I can talk about this here and I can talk about degradation, dehumanization. I can talk about what it feels to have somebody flick a two pound coin your way and tell you that's what you're worth, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and yeah, so, you know, we, we go through that program and it's it's almost deconstructing a, an identity that sex workers build to survive. That's the first half of it. And the second half is to construct a recovery identity that matches their recovery program, their ideals, their hopes, their, you know, so that they don't always walk around with that sense of having like a black mark on their soul. It's a tough time for um, people in incarceration as well at the moment, because obviously, yeah, with the lockdown, we're recording this during lockdown, and um, although we're moaning about homeschooling, the lads in Brixton, you know, they've then they've had all their visits stopped, so their families aren't getting to see them. And I think they're yeah. on twenty three hour, twenty three hour bang up most of them. That's correct. Which 
must be horrific. Have you been able to get? I mean, do you, do you do any work, Kirsty, at the moment through the prisons? Are you are you actually in the prisons, or you, do you work with people as they're on the out once they're once they're out of there and in recovery outside? No, we still do. So we obviously we've had to completely transform our addiction treatment services to you know survive COVID nineteen and to give it that healthy respect, make sure our clients are safe. But we still have admissions protocols uh, procedures in place and running now so we've got we've got a person coming to us tomorrow from prison oh, amazing. so amazing. they'll be they've been incredibly restricted and will be dying to get out but they've been working really hard uh and uh, they're gonna so they come into freedom and then they come into treatment as well which is far safer than straight out onto onto the streets which is one of the things that can cause that cycle of reoffending. And that was your journey, Kirsty, wasn't it? You came straight out and went mm-hmm. straight into a halfway house. And yeah. how does um, Forward Trust, this is a really stupid question, but how does Forward Trust persuade someone not to go have 24 hours? You know, because if I was banged up, I'd go, give me 24 hours. Let me see the people I need to see, yeah. do the things I want to do, go <laughs> McDonald's and whatever else, and then come to yeah. see you. Well, how do you do that? So what they do is they take you to McDonald's on the way. Um, so so what, what happened with me was, you know, I'd reached such a point of desperation that I'd figured out that there was a phenomenon that occurs on the morning of release. So I would spend my whole sentence saying, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to use, I'm, I'm going to do it differently this time. And then this phenomenon would occur on the morning of release. So I would start walking towards the, the gate to be released. And this thing happens in the mind as you go on from the inside of the gate to the outside. When you get on the outside, what happens is, is you think that's the stupidest idea I've ever had. Why on earth did I ever think I, I, what I'll do, I'm just going to have a drink today. I'm going to celebrate. I've su- successfully survived another prison sentence. And then before you know it, you're, you know, I, I woke up once in witness uh, on a train where I'd got drunk and fallen asleep. And, you know, it's, the, it's, an, it's an activating event. Once you've been activated once, all bets are off. This time, well, the, well, the last time, so it was 13 years ago now, What happened was I knew that I was going into treatment and I went into treatment at the place where I now work. So they had somebody there at the gate to collect me. All of the prep work had been done. They knew that I needed clothes and they knew that I wanted to eat. It was McDonald's as well. They knew (laughs) I wanted a McDonald's. So what they did, you know, and and this is smart planning. They took me to Sirencester and I'm from a city they took me to the sleepy Cotswold town of Sirencester and they just dodged every high risk point for me until I arrived safely at the Nelson Trust. So, so that's how they did it. Oh, Bribery and very smart planning. That's <laughs> and that's what you'll do tomorrow, right? With this yeah. woman coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brilliant, Kirsty. We, we know how the mind works, you know, addiction. The second that you start to address addiction, it starts to fight for its life. Mm-hmm. that's what happens addiction's not a quitter so it, it every single little insidious way and you know you can't do this there's no point why would you even try you're a waster you always have been this is the constant dialogue if you just use it'll all be fine this will all go away you don't have to worry about will they like you are your clothes gonna 
be the right, the same as everybody else's. You don't have to do any of that. Just use. It's, it's, you know, it's insidious. It really is. Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, but we will. Uh, and there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers, so join us for Plenty, Plenty Questions. Questions. I know it, how difficult that process is of stopping the cycle. With your family, it was heroin and mm. all the things that go with that. You know, for my family, whether it was drink and a lack of love. And when you get a strong woman, I was brought up by my mum, who was a strong woman who broke that cycle and, you know, was affectionate and compassionate. And for generations before that, we'd had Scottish Presbyterian families who never touched each other and right, never yeah. talked. And it seems that it takes a matriarch <laughs> to do that and a woman to do that. And, uh, it's great to talk to another strong woman, Kirsty, I must say. Thank you. It's true. There's, you know, it really it takes anybody, but when a woman does it, love is at the absolute heart of it. And there's there's a ferocity in women that, you know, it's just, it's impressive. I mean, there must be amazing success stories, but tell us a story about someone, you don't have to obviously mention any names, but someone who's, so tell us what someone's doing now who is right at the bottom. I've of got the best story you. in the world. And she is my best friend. So there was a girl I met, actually. She was on Wrapped uh, at the same time as me. Well, I'd completed and I was like a peer mentor. So I was maybe 10 months ahead in the program than she was. And she had an IPP sentence. So... Kirsty, sorry, just for our listeners, explain what that is. Indeterminate sentence for public protection, uh, which just essentially means that ordinarily people get a two-year sentence or an 18-month sentence. Yeah. An IPP sentence is has an end date that is reviewed. But when somebody goes into the prison, they put 99 years on the computer. They, you know, yeah. they, they are treated in the same way as a lifer. So it's it's almost classed like life imprisonment. In fact, it's worse. It's worse, isn't it? Because the for psychologically for them, they have no date exactly. unless, unless the, the powers that be agree exactly. they should be released. And is it usually, it's usually for what they would deem as extreme mm-hmm. violence. Yeah. yeah. So, so she's in there and she, I saw her in a, we were facilitating, well, I wasn't facilitating, but one of the counsellors was facilitating a group one day that was about, it was about abuse. They were talking about Stockholm syndrome, madly enough. And uh, this girl didn't speak. She didn't ever speak. And I, you know, when you can see that somebody's reality is being spoken about in a room, but non-verbally, so I didn't want to raise it in the room. I went outside afterwards and I sat on the pavement beside her and I just said to her, I see you. And um get emotional. <laughs> oh. So she right. she started to, you know, kind of work the program. She started to kind of really get into things. And I was released on my one year, my one year clean day. And um, we stayed in contact and there was no hope for her, you know, there was no hope. And then and then she she ended up getting a parole date. Now, bear in mind, the prison that we were in was closed conditions. And at that time, nobody had been released from an IPP sentence directly into the community from closed conditions. You know, she'd worked so hard. She deserved it. And uh, she managed to secure her parole. 
I was a forward trust volunteer at that time as well. So they allowed me to go and do that prison collection. So I went and met her at the prison gate. I brought her to treatment, the same treatment place that I'd gone into. And um, uh, this woman has gone on to do unbelievable things. So she she couldn't get a job at first. She Yeah, the IPP sentence, it, the supervision requirements, uh, they they really, really, really were a pain in the backside for her. She couldn't get, she, Sainsbury's wouldn't give her a job. That's how difficult it was, you know, and she was doing really well in the community. She completed treatment, settled down into a relationship. She, she went on to have, you know, a few miscarriages and lots of different struggles, but managed to get herself a job, uh, worked her way up to the head of residential services while she was still on probation supervision. And she's just gone on to have her absolute dream come true, a little baby girl that she's always wanted. And she's, I better not get her clean time wrong. I'm 12 and a half. She's like 11 and a half years clean now and has gone on. So, and those stories, they're not rare. They're not rare, but that's just one off the top of my head. Yeah, of course. That's amazing. It is quite moving, isn't it? Because it's like, I mean, I'm a big soft git, but I, I always find it so moving because I know how hard life can be, but then you put all those things against someone as, get, as well. You know, everything is leading you to go, this person's never going to make this, never. Drugs doesn't know class, it doesn't know creed, but you've got to say, it's like we're going to get onto it because the Hello Magazine department of uh, the Forward Trust means I have to ask you about your uh, conversations with uh, your very famous <laughs> friend. Princess Kate has spoken to you about these things, but obviously her world is a million miles away from it, as mine is. But you know that when the odds are stacked against you, like for you, when you grew up, the way you grew up and your pal grew up, to succeed through that, to break through that and, and come out with a life well lived and a life worth living that people look to you and, and say that she's contributing. It's an amazing, I find it, I find it amazing and fascinating mm. and, and incredibly inspiring. Mm. So tell us about bloody Princess Kate. <laughs> Where did you meet her? Uh, I met her at HMP Send. Uh, I've met her twice, actually. I've met her on both of the prison visits. And, and yeah, this time, the latest time, she she's doing a lot of looking into, you know, early years and how yeah. children's experiences in the early years of their life go on to affect them in adulthood and you know is there a link or a connection between the adult prison population and adverse childhood experiences you know so that was that was the kind of conversation I had with her which is pretty cool. I've got to say I'm not a massive royalist but I've got to say it's not the most fashionable thing to be attached to you know if you you know and what's great about her doing it is because obviously you know I care you care Mm -hmm. but no one really gives a monkeys about what we care about but if she's interested it it does make people sit up and listen and hopefully her mm-hmm. involvement in mm-hmm. that I'm I'm impre- I've got to say I'm impressed she's been to the Nick twice that's that's I'm sure yeah. she's been more, many times more than that that we don't know mm-hmm. about yeah even the even the media's reporting of something when Kate is involved tends to be more sensitive than it is ordinarily that there were, you know, on both occasions that she came, she spoke with different women, you know, different, more than my past ambassadors and uh, live inmates in the prison who were, who were actually residing there at that time. And ordinarily a a story goes out like that about someone with a past like mine or like theirs. And 
there are certain terminologies used to describe who we were. And when Kate is involved, interestingly, it's only, there was only two papers that did it. Everybody else reported really respectfully, which was also really nice. It's not just the awareness that she brings, it's the respect she commands as well. Kirsty, let me ask you one more thing. Just what you were saying about, you know, the, the pronouns that go before ex-offenders or drug addicts' names, you know, about what people presume they are or who they are. In the same sense, the the facility you have in this quiet, it's in the Cotswolds, right? Mm-hmm. How how does that work with the neighbourhood community? Does that, I mean, you've been there a while, but is there a mistrust? Is there an understanding? Is there a community? Is there is there a relationship between you guys and the local community? And how often does it kick off? We bring a very diverse population of individuals together into this community that probably would not ordinarily be there. But i tell you what happened that transformed the community's view of our clients. So uh, our clients had been, this was a few years ago, they reported it in the paper and everything. It was so nice. They'd recently done a first aid course. And a couple of them were going up to, because we're multi-sited. So we don't have one big, oh, look at us building. We have multiple houses that are that blend into the community. And uh, they were walking up to one of our other buildings and a, a gentleman, an old elderly gentleman had been working on his car and something had happened with the jack and the car had fallen on him. Now, our, our clients, they'd been first aid trained recently. They got the car off him. They got him out. They kept him stable until the ambulance arrived. And what happens then in that moment was they, I'm going to get emotional again. <laughs> they lost their status as those people and they became our people. And it totally transformed the way that the community interacts with them. People bring cakes down and they you know there's little old ladies around the corner who make cakes and one of the you know my story with the community I my mum died whilst I was in treatment and the lady who lived next door but one I couldn't afford a suit the Nelson Trust bought me the suit to go to my mum's funeral lady next door but one had me in her living room with my pants on and she hemmed the trousers for me so that my suit looked okay for my mum's funeral. That's how the community interacts, but it, it took time to get there. People are frightened of what they don't know. Of course they are. Well, Kirsty, we certainly know a bit more about you. And I, <laughs> you know, when I read your story and I thought, Kirsty's going to be a hard ass man. This is, she's a tough, she's, <laughs> a, she's going to be a tough, a tough woman. And, you know, you are, but there's such vulnerability and kindness still in you. And that, what I found about, working in the prisons and working with mostly males but what I found is that you know no one is one thing and I found that I've really found that people that have been accused and sentenced for violent awful crimes have a real capacity still for loving and for caring and um, I'm amazed at that I'm amazed at that dichotomy of personalities and uh Kirsty thank you for being so honest with us um it's great and I think you know, as this podcast goes forward, we're going to get more and more people to explain their story and to, as, as, as concisely and as openly as you have and find we'll find that there's a common ground for all of us. You know, sure. one message that I'm taking from all of it is that none of us are one thing. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there does come a point when you've 
you know, existed within and lived up to a stereotype your whole life, it's certainly nice to, to break it for the other half of your life. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe and look out for future episodes. Great Big Owl. Thank you.